I want to start today with a story. When I was in elementary school, I was part of a community track and field team. I did the jumps and a few of the hurdles, but my favorite event was the 4x100 relay. That's the one where there's four runners, each of you do a 100-yard dash, and you make one complete lap around the track. The hardest part about relay races is the passing of the baton. It's something you work on all the time. The key is the passing lane. What happens there is one runner starts here and there's a place, a mark on the, on the track where the previous runner, as soon as he hits it, this runner takes off. The goal is to get to full speed so that by the time the previous runner catches up to you, he can hand the baton to you and there's not a missed step. Our 4x100 relay team wasn't anything big, but for a bunch of elementary school kids, we thought we were pretty fast. In fact, by the end of the season, we had qualified to participate in a regional meet on campus at UCLA. We thought we'd reached the big time. We, we were preparing, stretching, warming up, and then something that the second runner said to me, I was the third, which I found out later I think is the, sh is the slowest of the four, but the, something the second runner said to me made me a little nervous. He asked, which hand are you going to take the baton in? I looked at him in disbelief and said, well, my right hand, like I have always done. We're going to do it just like we've practiced and, and ran every other meet all season long. I didn't think anything of it, but as we ran the race, the first runner did great, the second runner did great. As soon as he hit that mark that we'd put on the track, I took off running. There comes a moment where the previous runner yells, stick, and the next runner is supposed to extend his hand backwards without looking behind because that would slow you down. The previous runner then puts the baton in your hand, you grab it and take off running. In this case, runner number two yelled, stick, and I stuck out my right hand like I always had. He stretched his hand forward towards my left and dropped the baton. I immediately stopped, turned around, rushed back, grabbed the baton off the track and took off running as quickly as I could. But by then the race was lost. There was no hope for me or even our speedy anchor leg runner to be able to catch up to the rest of the pack. In fact, by the time I had turned around and grabbed this bouncing baton, I was outside the passing lane which disqualified us automatically. We were devastated, all because we missed the passing of the baton. I've learned that if anything ever goes wrong in a relay race, it's typically not during those wide open stretches when a sprinter is going full speed. It happens with the passing of a baton. The chapters that we're studying today are full of baton passing. And to see what happens as faith is passed on from previous runner to next makes all the difference as we are trying to pass our faith along to other people. Whether that's the rising generation, whether that's a missionary teaching an investigator, whether that's a parent teaching a child, I've learned that when it comes to the faith, this is something we either pass on or it's something the next generation passes up. To make sense of this in the Book of Mormon, we need to go to our very first runner, and that would be Nephi in our case. Go back with me to 1 Nephi chapter 6, and we'll see the first rule that Nephi puts in place as far as what the Book of Mormon is meant to contain. By the way, 1 Nephi chapter 6 is fascinating in its placement. It actually interrupts the flow of the narrative. If you were to take out chapter 6 from the Book of Mormon, the narrative flow would actually be smoother. The storyline would make more sense, not less. Usually if you skip a chapter, you're kind of lost. 
That's not the case in chapter 6. The way 1 Nephi chapter 5 ends, chapter 5 is when these brothers go back to get the brass plates and have finally returned to their family in the wilderness. Lehi and Sariah are thrilled that their boys have come back home. The story then ends with Lehi studying the scriptures, and in chapter 7, that is if we were to skip over chapter 6, chapter 7 begins with the realization you went back to get the plates, now you need to go back and get a family, Ishmael's family, so that you can get married and raise seed here in the wilderness and on into the promised land. Chapter 6 then adds nothing to the storyline. 5 is one trip, 7 is the next trip, and 6 includes no journeying it at all. In fact, there's no real history in chapter 6. This is one of those moments where Nephi kind of turns into the camera, breaks that fourth wall, and says, let me tell you readers something about what I'm doing here. It's almost as if the chapter 5, Nephi realizes, Dad got scriptures, and he's thrilled about them. In fact, the way chapter 5 ends, Lehi begins to search them from the beginning and finds them to be of great worth unto the children of men. It's almost as if right then, Nephi stops and thinks, if Dad is seeing the value in the brass plates, I wonder if anybody's going to see the value in the gold plates that I'm writing. And so he pauses the narrative, and gives us six powerful verses about what he's trying to accomplish with the scriptures that he's engraving right then. Notice what he says, verse 1. Now I, Nephi, do not give the genealogy of my fathers in this part of my record. Neither at any time shall I give it after upon these plates which I am writing. For it's given in the record which has been kept by my father, wherefore I do not write it in this work. In short, this is not going to be a work of genealogy. He says in verse 2, It sufficeth me to say that we are descendants of Joseph. I'll admit, I'm a horrible family historian. I have other family members that are so much better at family history than I am. My mom's amazing. My uncle's incredible. Even my daughter beats me when it comes to family history. I'm, I'm more along the lines of this one. Uh, it sufficeth me to say that we're descendants of so-and-so. Okay, Some begats and some begottens in between, but that's our family line. What's interesting here is that Nephi is admitting, almost apologizing, I'm not going to spend time on genealogy. I actually met an anti-Mormon once that accused the Book of Mormon as being false based on the fact that there was no genealogy at the beginning. I, I thought, wait, you wanted that? You spend time on the he begat him and he begat him and he begat him? That's, that's flyover material during in the Old Testament as far as most people are concerned. But he had a point. In the Old Testament, people are so emphatic on tracing their lineage. They want you to know who they are as a writer so that they can be trusted. There's even a place, I think it's in Ezra, where it says that because a certain family in the Levite tribe wasn't able to trace their genealogy back to Levi, they were put out from the priesthood. Even Matthew begins his gospel. This gospel meant to a, for a Jewish audience. He begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. So this anti-Mormon had a point. There, if, if this is an ancient Semitic text, shouldn't it begin with genealogy? By the way, the Book of Ether basically begins with a whole lot of genealogy. But the fact that the Book of Mormon itself does not raised his eyebrows, at least. Now, on the one hand, we lost 116 pages, right? So perhaps Lehi began just as an ancient Semitic writer ostensibly would with his own genealogy. We miss it, so we can't, we can't speak to one side or the, or the other of that issue. However, the fact that Nephi, the first time he really starts talking about his own record, the fact he brings up genealogy and excuses himself for not having talked about it more, actually backs up what this anti-Mormon was expecting, but also lets you know 
Nephi was expecting the same thing, or at least assuming his readers would expect that, and is making a point, I'm not going to include that in my writing. Therefore, the absence of genealogy at the beginning, but the excuse or the justification for its absence, actually, in my mind, serves to defend the Book of Mormon more than this anti-Mormon was trying to attack it. But anyway, verse 3, he continues, It mattereth not to me that I am particular to give a full account of all the things of my father. They can't be written upon these plates. Now, if the first group is saying the Book of Mormon ought to have more genealogy, another group says the Book of Mormon ought to be better and clearer history. And yet again, Nephi is here saying, It mattereth not to me that I am particular. Now, I'm a historian, and I can't imagine what it would be like if I was writing a history paper and turn it into a professor, and it began with something like, it mattereth not to me that I am particular to give a full account of the history that I'm writing. Because for my professor, it does matter. For my professor, he or she would want me to be particular. I would need to give a full account of the history that I'm trying to detail. And yet Nephi is here saying, that's not what this book is for. Those who attack the Book of Mormon based on lack of historical evidence, there is more than they'll, they'll admit to, but, but those that want to say the Book of Mormon is a lousy history of ancient Mesoamerica or ancient mound culture in North America, anyone who wants to, to pick apart the Book of Mormon because of its lack of history, I'll admit, you're right. There's not a whole lot of history here, at least not enough to recreate Nephite society or civilization. And that's the point. It was never intended to be history. Elder Maxwell used to joke, saying, people that attack the Book of Mormon for something it never intended to be, it's like attacking the phone book for lack of a plot. I mean, phone books can be very helpful. Amazing characters, but not a whole lot of plot line going on. That's not its purpose. Same with the Book of Mormon. Here, when Nephi says, I'm not going to be particular to give a full account of history, why? For I desire the room that I may write of the things of God. This is meant to be scripture, not history. It will contain the things of God, not simply the things of my civilization. Verse 4 then becomes the focal point for Nephi and for every prophet to whom the plates will eventually be passed. For the fullness of mine intent. In other words, the whole reason I'm writing this is that I may persuade men to come unto the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and be saved. The fullness of mine intent. Every jot and tittle, every time I put pen to paper, in this case, stylus to gold plate, is meant to persuade, not just to inform, but to persuade. I'm trying to convince you to believe certain things, to feel certain things, and most importantly, to act in certain ways. Namely, to come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is Christ, to come unto Jesus, and as a result of that coming, to be saved in and through him. It's interesting that Nephi even wants to be outcome-oriented and not just activity-focused. It's one thing for him to write. It's another thing for us to be persuaded. It's one thing for him to point us to Jesus. It's another thing for us to actually decide to come unto him, and as a result of that, to be saved. Elder Bednar once taught a powerful thing from Doctrine and Covenants section 68, verse 25. That's the verse about 
any parents in Zion who do not teach their children to understand faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost by the time they're eight and the age of accountability. The accountability then shifts to the parents, and the sin is upon their heads. Elder Bednar basically asked, what is the point of that scripture? I've asked my students, if you had to pick a single noun and a single verb to sum up that verse, what are the key noun, what's the key noun and the key verb? And invariably they'll say, oh, this is a verse about parents teaching. Parents is the noun, teaching is the verb. And I'll say that not, not, not according to Elder Bednar. Look again. And as they look at it, who is the Lord really worried about in that verse? Who's he focused on? He's focused on the children. That's the noun. And what does he want the children to do? To understand. And so as Elder Bednar has taught, this verse is not about parents teaching. That's simply an activity. That verse is about children understanding. That makes the verse an outcome. And that's what the Lord is emphasizing. Same with Nephi here. The fullness of mine intent is to persuade everyone to come unto Christ and be saved. That's the intended outcome. Verse 5, wherefore, in other words, consequently, as a result, because of everything I just said, because of the fullness of mine intent, the things which are pleasing unto the world I do not write, but the things which are pleasing unto God and unto those who are not of the world. Verse 5 to me is fascinating that the Book of Mormon acts as a barometer of our own spiritual sensitivity. If we are only drawn to the things of the world, the Book of Mormon will not hold much interest for us. However, if we are pleased by the things that please God, then the Book of Mormon will be pleasing unto us as well. Verse 6, Wherefore, again, as a result, so verse 4, the fullness of mine intent is to persuade people to come to Christ. For that reason, verse 5, I want to write only the things that are pleasing unto God and not of the world. Wherefore, verse 6, I shall give commandment unto my seed that they shall not occupy these plates with things which are not of worth unto the children of men. That's the cardinal rule. That's how the baton is to be passed from scriptural writer to scriptural writer. Nephi's laying down the law, do not waste space. You won't really get to see how well this is taken until the baton is passed from Nephi to his brother Jacob. So let's fast forward to that. Jacob chapter 1, verse 1, is the first time you see the baton being passed from one runner to the next. And as I learned as an elementary school kid, this is where problems might arise. Jacob 1, verse 1. Fifty-five years had passed away from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem, and Nephi gave me, Jacob, a commandment concerning the small plates upon which these things are engraven. First verse from a new writer, and he's clarifying the instructions that he was given along with his baton. Verse 2. He gave me, Jacob, a commandment that I should write upon these plates a few of the things which I consider to be most precious, that I should not touch, save it were lightly, concerning the history of this people, which are called the people of Nephi. Nephi is passing down the baton undiluted. I decided early on not to give much history. I'm asking you, Jacob, to do likewise. Touch only lightly, only give enough history so that it can act as skeleton upon which to attach the flesh and that flesh is the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, he said the history of his people should be engraven upon his other plates. We'll talk about those other plates later on. 
but these plates, I should preserve these plates and hand them down unto my seed from generation to generation. And here's what these plates would contain. If there were preaching which was sacred, or revelation which was great, or prophesying, that I should engrave in the heads of them upon these plates, and touch upon them as much as it were possible, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of our people. There's not even enough room for regular old revelation. There's not enough space for mediocre preaching. It has to be sacred preaching, great revelation, the heads of the prophecies. That's all we have space for. Limit the history, expand the doctrine, and do that for the sake of the people. This is just what they'll need. And, interestingly enough, do it as much as possible for Christ's sake. If the fullness of these prophetic writers' intent is to persuade people to come unto Jesus, then the success of their efforts is meant for Christ's sake, just as much as it is for the sake of those who come unto him. It's what enables the atonement. It's what initiates saving grace. It's what allows Jesus to extend himself to us. And so if faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, as Paul teaches the Romans, then by giving us the word of God, triggering that faith, allowing Christ to reach us in ways that would other be, otherwise be difficult, this is for Christ's sake as much as it is for us. It seems clear based on these verses that Jacob got the message from his big brother. Again, Nephi was large in stature. Maybe that had something to do with it. But fast forward, and we'll see the second baton passing, this time from Jacob to his son Enos. The very last verse, this is often where you'll see baton passings, when one writer is about to finish and the next writer is about to begin. Notice how Jacob ends his book. Jacob chapter 7, verse 27. I, Jacob, saw that I must soon go down to my grave. Wherefore I said unto my son Enos, Take these plates. And I told him the things which my brother Nephi had commanded me. He's trying to convey the same commandment. I'm not just passing down plates. I'm passing down instructions on what to write on them. I told him the things which my brother Nephi had commanded me, and he promised obedience unto the commands. And I make an end of my writing upon these plates, which writing has been small. That's, there's the end of Jacob. Pick up the next page, and what does Enos tell us? Behold, it came to pass that I, Enos, knowing my father that he was a just man, for he taught me in his language and also in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and blessed be the name of my God for it. And then he begins his own story. Enos is taking up that baton. It's hinted at when he says that his father had taught me in his language. I saw a wonderful video on Book of Mormon Central, which is an incredible resource for anyone who's trying to understand the Book of Mormon better. And in it, as they were discussing the Book of Enos, they made an interesting point about that that it was probably not linguistics alone. I don't look back and think, I'm so glad that my mom and dad taught me English. I'm so grateful for all of those wonderful songs on Sesame Street that gave me my, gave me my ABCs. That seems to just go with the territory. You almost can't help but learn the spoken language of your parents. That's how communication unfolds. And yet, for a prophet to say, I'm grateful that my father taught me in his language in the midst of a baton passing, it was more likely that he was referring to the language of Scripture. Not some kind of spoken Hebrew, but some kind of written Reformed Egyptian. Or in our case, I'm grateful that my parents taught me the language of Scripture. 
In this case, Enos is going to use the language of Scripture to record his own experiences. But back to the baton passing. Okay? We've paused on this. Enos had an incredible leg on the relay. And what he teaches us about running the race is so powerful. But his leg quickly ends, and he passes the baton to his son, Jerem. Jerem, chapter 1, verse 1. Now behold, I, Jerem, write a few words according to the commandment of my father, Enos. So far, so good. But notice what he says about the reason why he's doing it. End of verse 1, that our genealogy may be kept. Now I start, I, I sense Nephi starting to get a little nervous in the grave. Wait a minute, uh, grandnephew. I specifically said I'm not going to do much genealogy here. The fullness of my intent is to persuade people to come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and be saved. Verse 2, Jerem continues, As these plates are small, as these things are written for the intent of the benefit of our brethren, the Lamanites, it must needs be that I write a little. But I shall not write the things of my prophesying, nor of my revelations, which means he's having them. For what can I write more than my fathers have written? Have they not revealed the plan of salvation? Now there's two ways that you could read this. If we want to give Jerem all the benefit of the doubt, because again, he's a good enough person to be receiving revelation and prophecy of his own, perhaps these words are spoken out of humility or focus. I don't need to add anything to, to what's been taught. The doctrine of Christ is here in its plainness and purity, and I'm not going to dilute that with any words of my own. On the other hand, this may be spoken out of a fear of redundancy, an inability to see his own potential contribution. I think sometimes when somebody gets up in fast and testimony meeting and all, almost apologizes for taking up time, I don't have anything new to say. I just want to bear my testimony. Sometimes those ones are the most powerful testimonies of all because it is a pure second witness of truths that hopefully we all know and feel deeply about. Not any kind of grandstanding or trying to tell a story that, or share some insight that's never been shared before. Simply adding additional witnesses to truth that we know. I'm not sure which Jerem is closer to the truth. I think we can learn from either possibility. But as far as the general attitude of the people, I think we get a hint in verse 5. He describes them as observing to keep the law of Moses and the Sabbath day holy unto the Lord. They didn't profane, they didn't blaspheme. I think this last line gives us the clue we need. And the laws of the land were exceedingly strict. Again, I get a little nervous when our approach to passing on the faith has more to do with commandments than covenants, is exceedingly strict with a lot more don'ts than do's. That's often what we associate with the law of Moses, this law of performances and ordinances, as will be said later in the Book of Mormon, these things that you're supposed to be doing all the time. Even when it mentions the Sabbath day being kept holy unto the Lord. I don't know about you, but often Sabbaths seem to be more a day of don'ts than a day of do's. It's we don't profane, we don't blaspheme, the laws of the land are exceedingly strict. Is that the kind of perspective on the gospel we want our children, our friends, our neighbors to have? 
that this is all about not doing certain things and abiding by strict law. Of course, obedience is key. But to have the kind of attitude towards obedience that Doctrine and Covenants section 59 describes as having been crowned with commandments, not a few. By the way, section 59 has a lot to do with keeping the Sabbath day holy too. And I love the fact that in that same revelation where he's teaching us about a day that unfortunately we often turn into a day of don'ts, the Lord talks about crowning us with command with commandments. That if we see them as blessings, as avenues to greater happiness, that will change the way that we look at these strict commandments of God. Verse 10, the threatening words of prophets and people continue as needed according to the word of God. Sadly, it seems that the challenges we saw at the end of the book of Enos are continuing on into the book of Jerem. And so rather than the soft approach, the positive approach, a more threatening, a more strict way of teaching is necessary. I remember once years ago as a seminary teacher having six classes I was teaching and five of the six gave me wings to fly with. It was amazing how ready they were to learn the gospel, how focused they were on understanding the things of God, and as a result, how much fun we could have together because everyone was open to it already. The one exception to that was one class that I had that if you gave them an inch, they'd take a mile. I felt so sad for them because they this was not the kind of experience in seminary they could have been having. Honestly, I was tempted to invite one or two from that class to go visit any of the other classes I was teaching so they could see, wait a minute, this is what seminary could be? We could be having so much more fun learning the gospel. The strictness of our class has more to do with us as students than it has to do with you as a teacher. That's exactly what I was hoping they would realize. So often the positivity or the negativity of how the gospel is presented to us is based on our own readiness to receive. Sometimes when we feel threatened by the gospel, it's because nothing softer would ever penetrate our hardened heart. I think that helps explain another verb that appears in verse 11. Wherefore the prophets and the priests and the teachers did labor diligently, it's going to take that much work, exhorting with all long-suffering the people to diligence. It's one thing to teach diligently. It's another thing to teach with long-suffering. For some students, insight and understanding and acceptance may not come quickly or easily. And so our diligence needs to be softened with long-suffering in faith that eventually our faith will take root in them. One other detail in verse 11, it says that they did teach the law of Moses and the intent for which it was given. That and is essential. It's one thing to teach the what's. In this case, the law of Moses. In our case, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The what's of discipleship. We do this, we do this, we don't do this, we do this. It's another thing to teach the whys behind those what's. To teach the intent for which it was given. When we were young, we asked our parents why all the time. Until, unfortunately, they got so tired of it 
that they probably just said, quit asking why, or they'd say something like, well, because I said so. Unfortunately, we've internalized that to the point that we've perhaps stopped asking why. And yet the why behind we do things is what empowers our will to do those things in the first place. If I can understand the intent for which the law of Moses was given, Amulek clarifies this beautifully in Alma 34. Every wit of the law of Moses is meant to point you forward to the atonement of Jesus Christ, that great and last sacrifice. If we understood the intent for which we were doing these things, I think we'd be far more willing to do them. And so as we attempt to pass our faith on to others, make sure that we're not just teaching, but that we are teaching the intent for which the truths of God are given us. In Jerem's case, part of that intent was to persuade them. Again, that same word we saw back in 1 Nephi chapter 19, that we saw back in 1 Nephi chapter 6, to persuade them to look forward unto the Messiah and believe in him to come as though he already was. By the way, that's faith. To believe in things to come as though they already were. Abinadi is going to personify that beautifully. Speaking of things to come as though they already had come. That's faith. When you can speak of the future in the past tense. Things to come as though they already had. Verse 12, then it came to pass that by, do, by so doing they kept them from being destroyed upon the face of the land. For they did prick their hearts with the word, continually stirring them up unto repentance. Jerem then ends with verse 15, I deliver these plates into the hands of my son Omni, that they may be kept according to the commandments of my fathers. Again, Jerem gets it. The baton is being passed. We have to do this right. At the very beginning, coach trained us on passing lanes and extending the baton. We have to do it according to the commandments of our fathers. Now, if in Enos and Jerem, we get to pause the, the baton passing to watch a brief leg of the relay, by the time you get to Omni, all you're seeing really is baton passing. And here, no offense, Omni, this is where the Book of Mormon really begins to bottom out. If there is a small portion of the small plates of Nephi, this is where it becomes most minuscule. Honestly, I even wonder if Omni deserves to have a book in the scriptures named after him. The real hero of the book of Omni is a later writer named Malachi. In fact, I actually went and crossed out the name Omni in my book and wrote the name Amalekai instead. So in my opinion, this deserves to be the book of Amalekai. And he's, he's the, the, our saving grace in this chapter. But when we meet Omni in verse 1, I, Omni, being commanded by my father, Jerem. So the baton's been passed. Jerem ends in verse 15 with the commandments of my fathers. Omni begins in verse 1. I was commanded by my father, Jerem, that I should write eh, somewhat upon these plates. Why? To preserve our genealogy. Oh, nervous again. That's not the point. That is peripheral to the real purpose of the Book of Mormon. So in verse 1, Omni is taking the baton and thinking he's running this race for the purpose of preserving genealogy. In verse 2, he says, eh, I have myself, am a wicked man. I haven't kept the statutes and commandments of the Lord as I ought to have done. I doubt this is just the kind of humility we saw in Nephi when he says, O wretched man that I am. I think there's a little more wretchedness here 
legitimately. I'm a wicked man. I haven't kept God's statutes and commandments. But then again, if all this book is for is to preserve genealogy, even a wicked man can do that. He begat him. He begat him. Well, dad begat me. That's easy. Verse 3 sounds a lot like the way I keep my journal. 276 years had passed away. We had some peace. We had some war. Well, looky here. 282 years had passed away. Six years just passed, and we haven't even separated verses yet. Like I said, that seems a lot like my journals, sadly. My wife is one of the great journal writers in this dispensation. It's like Wilfred Woodruff and then Emily Halverson. I sometimes actually ask her, will you please include a few things about me in your journal so that our posterity knows that you were actually married? For me, it's more like each entry will be on January 1st, and it'll say something like, this year I'm really going to be good at keeping my journal. And then you turn the page, and it's January 1st of the next year, and it says, please disregard previous notice. Uh, I struggle in that and need to do a lot better at it. But in this case, Omni is having the same problem. He says, but notice what he says at the end of verse 3. I had kept these plates according to the commandments of my fathers. He thought he was doing it right. As long as I passed down genealogy, said a couple of details about some good times and some bad times, I'm, I'm checking the box. I'm doing what I've been asked. And with enough having been done, I conferred them upon my son Amaron, and I make an end. I'm done. I did my job. Genealogy has been kept. Verse 4. Now I, Amaron, write the things whatsoever I write. We're going downhill fast. Dad said, I write somewhat upon these plates. Now his son is saying, I write whatsoever I write, which are few, in the book of my father. So he doesn't even call it his book anymore. This is dad's. This is dad's book. Behold, it came to pass that 320 years had passed away. So we've seen a huge jump in time now since the last time his father wrote. And he includes a couple of details, uh, purely historical. Again, when Nephi said, that's not the fullness of my intent. And in verse 8, he then says, I did deliver the plates unto my brother Chemish. Verse 9. Now I, Chemish, write what few things I write. At least his brother used a bigger word like whatsoever. Now it's just eh, what few things I write in the same book with my brother. It's dad's. My brother used it for a while. I've got it now. Same book. Behold, this is classic. I saw the last which he wrote, that he wrote it with his own hand. He wrote it in the day that he delivered them unto me. And after this manner, we keep the records. That's just how we do it. We wait until the very last day. And then we grab our, our own hand and write our little words, and then we pass the buck. I almost get the sense that Chemish and his brother Amaron are almost playing hot potato with the plates by now. It's almost like Amaron has taken it and said, hey, hey, Chemish, come here. I, I want you to see something. See this book? It's dad's. It's not mine. Uh, but he said something about writing genealogy in it, so I'm just going to write, I'm the son of, of dad. Okay? Uh, I just want you to see this. And I'm writing it down as some time has passed since Dad wrote. Wow, has it really been that much time? Uh, it's all right. It's just genealogy. And now I'm done, okay? It's almost like Amaron says, hey, Chemish, come here, come here. Will, will you just hold this for a second? And he hands him the gold plates, and Chemish is like, what do you want? And then Amaron's like, you touched it last, and he's out. And then Chemish is left with these things going, uh, I, I guess this is how we keep the plates. And then notice the end of verse 9. For it is according to the commandments of our, of our fathers. By this point, Nephi has fully turned over in his grave. 
pulling out his hair going, are you kidding me? This is not according to the commandments of your fathers. I said, do not waste space on the plates. I said, don't worry about history. I said, genealogy is the least of our concerns. The fullness of mine intent is to persuade people to come unto Christ, and that's not happening in the book of Omni. This is not according to the commandments of our, of our fathers. And then how does Chemish end? With simply that. I make an end. It, at least Amaron passed the plates on and said that he was giving them to Chemish. At least there's a paper trail, right? A, a return address. And yet for Chemish, I make an end. Drop the mic, drop the plates, step away, and I'm done. The Book of Mormon really could have ended right then. Except verse 10, his son, Abinadom, must have stumbled across these things. Because I, Abinadom, am the, am, the son of Chenna, am, am the son of Chemish. Again, end of verse 9, that's the first time a baton has been passed without being made clear who it's being given to or being taken up by. Verse 10, I, Abinadom, am the son of Chemish. He talks about some wars and contentions that he saw. In verse 11, the record of this people is engraven upon plates which is had by the kings. I know of no revelation, save that which has been written. I don't know any prophecy that hasn't been written before. Wherefore, that which is sufficient is written, and I make an end. Verse 11 is interesting. I don't know why we're even doing this if the record of this people is upon plates that's had by the kings. Remember earlier it was, this is my dad's book. I'm not claiming any responsibility for it. Here it's not even this is my dad's or my ancestor's book. It's, I don't really know why this redundancy is here. The kings are taking the, the record. The kings are keeping track of our history. So this seems to be beside the point. And so it's easy for him at the end of 11 to make an end. Verse 12, again, there's been no actual passing of the baton that we read. But in verse 12, behold, I am Amalekai, the son of Abinadab. Behold, I will speak unto you somewhat concerning Mosiah, who was made king over the land of Zarahemla. Amalekai is my favorite person who's writing the plates in the book of Omni. He, it's almost like he recognizes we're about to bottom out. The book of Mormon is about to lose its purpose and perhaps its presence in people's lives. If we're just writing down another link in the genealogical chain, if we're saying a couple of words about war or peace just to say that we're keeping some history, if we're waiting for the last day to pass these things on and then ditching them in the hands of a reluctant brother, this isn't scripture anymore. What, what's happening here? And so what does Amalekite do? He picks up a lost strand and talks about Mosiah. He tells the story of this righteous man who's in the midst of wickedness and so is told by God to leave and begin again. Does this sound like anyone that you know? Does this sound like Lehi, righteous man, midst of wickedness, get up and go? Does it sound like Nephi, when he leaves his brothers, righteous man, midst of wickedness, get up and go? In, in its own way, does it even sound like Joseph Smith? Righteous young boy in the midst of churches who have drawn near to God with their lips, but remove their hearts far from him. And so what does he do? He gets up and religiously goes. It's almost like Amalekai is beginning the Book of Mormon over anew. 
beginning with a second Lehi, so to speak, and giving the Book of Mormon a chance to get back up and running. He teaches a little bit about what happened with Mosiah and his people. He speaks of Mosiah's magnificent son, Benjamin. And by the end of the book of Omni, he says in verse 25, I began to be old, having no seed, and knowing King Benjamin to be a just man before the Lord. Wherefore, I shall deliver up these plates unto him. Now we're up and running. King Benjamin will take these plates and run with them, and we will never have another downward spiral in the Book of Mormon again, like we see in the Book of Omni, as far as passing faith along is concerned. Amalekite totally gets it. In fact, even the few things he describes about the people of King Mosiah have to do with their focus on the Word of God. In verse 13, who was it that followed Mosiah and his people out? It said they were led by many preachings and prophesying. They were admonished continually by the word of God. They were led by the power of his arm. God's word admonished them, led them, guided them to where they needed to go. In verse 14, when they finally arrive at their destination, they find a people there, the people of Zarahemla. And what do the people of Zarahemla do when they meet the people of Mosiah? They rejoice exceedingly because the Lord had sent the people of Mosiah with the plates of brass, which contain the record of the Jews. It's not just, wow, new people. It was, you have scripture. Because in verse 17, when it talks about these people who had come out from the land of Jerusalem, it says their language had become corrupted and they had brought no records with them. As a result, they denied the being of their creator. And the people of Mosiah couldn't understand them. The people of Zarahemla knew all too well the danger of losing the word of God, of not having a baton to pass. I was disqualified because we didn't pass the baton where we needed to. And to be disqualified from an understanding of God because we haven't received the records that are being passed up from generation to generation. They also, verse 20, rejoice that Mosiah has the gift and power of God to be able to interpret engravings that they found upon a large stone. Again, Scripture. Throughout this little section that Amalekai gives us in the book of Omni, it is saturated with Scripture. The need to be able to pass along faith as it is recorded and engraven upon plates, upon stone, upon the fleshy tables of the heart. We saw already in verse 25 that he is intent on passing these plates on to a worthy successor, King Benjamin, but he does give us two magnificent verses of exhortation. Again, why I love the book of Amalekai, as I like to call it. He says in verse 25, I shall deliver up these plates unto him, exhorting all men to come unto God, the Holy One of Israel. Can you sense Nephi perking up from the grave? Well, wait. Is there someone yet who understands the fullness of mine intent is to persuade people to come unto Christ? Come unto God, Amalekai says, the Holy One of Israel, and believe in, notice all these sources of truth, in prophesying and in revelations and in the ministering of angels and in the gift of speaking with tongues and in the gift of interpreting languages and all things which are good, 
all of those means of accessing the faith of our fathers believe in those things and that's how you'll come to know for yourself that they're true verse 26 he then gives his final words of exhortation I would that ye should come unto Christ who is the Holy One of Israel Nephi's intent is Amalekai's intent partake of his salvation and the power of his redemption yea come unto him and offer your whole souls as an offering unto him and continue in fasting and praying and endure to the end and as the Lord liveth ye will be saved come the first time to partake and then come the second time to offer come to Christ to receive what he gives you and then come to Christ to offer all that you have in return. I love what Amalekai tells us in verse 26. And I'm even more grateful for what he does in giving the baton back to Benjamin so that the Book of Mormon can continue as it had before with a strong, persuasive power to bring us unto Jesus Christ. There are just a few last things I want to say from the words of Mormon, and we'll be done for today. But I do want to just emphasize what we've seen through these smallest of the small plates of Nephi. The passing of the baton from one person to the next to the next. By way of review, Lehi would have given us 116 pages worth. It's gone. Nephi gives us 55 chapters where he self-imposed restriction on anything that is not of great worth. In other words, Nephi gives us 55 chapters of the best of the best. He passes the baton to Jacob, who gives us seven chapters. Very short, but incredible words. The heads of these things for the sake of us and for the sake of Christ. He then passes the baton to Jerem, who gives us 15 verses of genealogy and a little history mostly for the benefit of the Lamanites. Omni then gives us three verses of genealogy. It's no longer in righteous hands, very infrequent journal entries. He then hands it off to Amaron, his son, who gives us five verses of whatsoever he writes. It's not his book. 38 years have passed. He hands it off to his brother on the last day it was in his possession. Chemish gives us one little token verse then of a few, of a few things he writes. Nothing really to add. Didn't care about passing them, on, them on. Abinadom, his son, picks it up, gives us two verses as if someone else is taking care of it and doesn't care to pass them on either. And then Amalekai picks up the smoldering torch and runs with it. Gives it back into the hands of someone like Nephi, a King Benjamin. Having described someone like Lehi, a King Mosiah, emphasizing to us the danger of losing records and the need to get them into righteous hands and finishes with powerful exhortations. Years ago, in a seminary class, I took a picture of Jesus, the one that we're all familiar with of Christ in the red robe. Beautiful painting, Del Parson. I took it to the copy machine and I made a copy of it. In those days, it wasn't a color copier. And so I now had this beautiful red-robed original and a black and white copy of it. I then shifted one spot, and I took this black and white copy, 
and put it on the copy machine and copied that. And then copied that and copied that and copied that and just kept making copies of copies of copies to see what would happen. Again, the technology at the time was such that a copy was always a little bit inferior to its original. But to do that over and over and over again, the quality of the copy continued to deteriorate until it became much more blotchy, whited out. If I remember the count correctly, it was about on copy number 101 or 102. What had began as a beautiful, clear, colored original was now a completely blank page. I had not removed the picture. I had simply made copies of copies of copies without ever taking someone back to the original source. More than anything that I learned from the smallest of the small plates of Nephi, it's the need to go back to the original and gain independent verification through personal revelation. Instead of taking all of our truths at second or third or fourth or fifth hand. In my case, it would have been seventh hand. I admit it already, I'm not much of a genealogist, but let me share with you one line of my family tree. The first family to join the church in Italy were the Malin family. Lorenzo Snow climbed the Alps and found a bunch of Waldensian Protestants who had fought against the established religion for so long that they were open to hear of truth when it was restored. The father of that family was a man by the name of Jean Daniel Malin, and he was baptized in the 1850s. If Lorenzo Snow was the missionary who first replicated his testimony into the mind and heart of one of his converts, then Lorenzo Snow's picture of Jesus can be the original from which my family's line emerges. John Daniel Malin's testimony then would have been the first copy. John Daniel Malin had a daughter named Madeline, who I named my daughter after. And Madeline Malin was the first young woman to join the church in Italy. Madeline crossed the plains with her family, came to the promised land in Salt Lake City, and raised her daughter, Ophelia, in the faith. That daughter, Ophelia Farley, then passed her faith along to her daughter, Vida Fidelia Shaw. Vida raised her son in the faith, Frank Shaw Wilcox, and eventually his faith bore fruit in his daughter, Sandra Jean Halverson, who raised her six children, including me, firm in that faith. I'm a seventh generation Latter-day Saint on that side of the family tree. But is my testimony the copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy? Because if so, my picture of Jesus is very far removed from the clear vision of deity that Lorenzo Snow brought with him to Italy. Again, independent verification through personal revelation. We can go straight back to the source. And if we are trying to fortify our faith in the midst of a shaking world, 
it's not enough to hold on to the faith of our fathers. We have to tap directly into what President Uchtdorf called the faith of our Father, our Heavenly Father, His truth, and eliminate all the middlemen and middlewomen in between. We should be grateful for every strong link in the chain, but we have to make sure that we can tap right back into the source of strength directly. In the parable of the sower that Jesus taught, he talked about the seed that fell on stony ground. That would have made it the most difficult to reach the source of living water. And it talks about one of the plants that died, that withered because of the heat of the sun. In the Mark version of the parable, it says that it had no root in itself. In other words, there must have been some other plant that's taproot went deep enough to actually access the water. This one wasn't willing to pay the price to get to its own water source, and so somehow it tapped into some other root. It had no root in itself, and therefore withered and died. We live in an age where it is too difficult to live on borrowed light. The shaking of faith that's taking place in this last dispensation is such that we need to be able to stand on our own two spiritual feet, that we need to have root in ourselves, that we need independent verification through personal revelation so that our picture of Jesus is an original rather than the copy of a copy of a copy. Which brings me to the last thing I want to say briefly about the Words of Mormon. Words of Mormon is connective tissue. It's completely out of chronology when it comes to the Book of Mormon. We go from 130 years before Christ, as the Book of Omni slash Amalekai ends, to fast-forwarding to about 385 A.D., where Mormon is telling us what he's doing here. He has taken the small plates of Nephi and attached them to the back of his abridgment of the large plates of Nephi. Now, what are all these plates about? There are other sources you can turn to that have good explanations of, of how this all works together. But for our purposes, let's just go back to 1 Nephi chapter 9 briefly. 1 Nephi 9 is another interruption of the narrative. Chapter 8, Dad explains the dream, or Dad shares the dream. Chapter 10, Dad continues speaking. But right in the middle of it all, Nephi pauses the narrative and says, Can I just say something really quick about these plates? Verse 2 of chapter 9, I have spoken concerning these plates. Behold, they are not the plates upon which I make a full account of the history of my people. For the plates upon which I make a full account of my people have given the name of Nephi. Wherefore, they are called the plates of Nephi after mine own name. And these plates also are called the plates of Nephi. I always laugh at that going, okay, I'm writing two sets of plates. There's one that's more history, I'm going to call them the plates of Nephi. As opposed to these ones, this are ministry, and we're going to call these the plates of Nephi. Oh, rats. They're both called the plates of Nephi. Oh, well. We'll have one that's history and one that's ministry, and I hope you can keep them straight. Mormon keeps them straight beautifully. In fact, he doesn't even know about the small plates until the end of his own ministry. The, what, what Nephi tells us in chapter 9, he says in verse 3, I have received the commandment of the Lord that I should make these plates for the special purpose that there would be an account engraven of the ministry of my people. The other ones will have the reigns of the kings, the wars, the contentions of my people. But these ones, it's ministry. That one, history. This one, 
ministry. Verse 5, The Lord commanded me to make these plates for a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. I have no idea why I have to do this twice. You remember what Jacob tells us at the beginning of Jacob 4? It is hard to engrave on metal plates. And so no wonder Nephi is going, what, you want me to do two copies instead of one? <sighs> okay. This is a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. But the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning. So I'll trust him. It's a lot like Enos. I know this about God, and so I'll do this because I trust him. Then fast forward a thousand years almost. And you have Mormon who only has access to the large plates of Nephi. The ones that Chemish and Abinadom are referring to when they say, I don't know why we're doing this. The kings are keeping the record. Mormon has that. The reign of the kings, the ministry, the wars, the war chapters, right? The wars and contentions of the people. Thankfully, still all kinds of beautiful truth in there as well, which we'll see as we begin next week. But what Mormon's mission was, was to take that record of history, and as he complains, I can't even include the 100th part, but I will give you the best 1% I possibly can to try to help you come unto Christ. I will use history as my ministry. But as the, at the end of it, and this is all explained in the in words of Mormon, at the end of all of that work, as he's putting the plates together into its near final form, he stumbles across this minuscule little record, the small plates of Nephi. He reads them and would have had some considerable deja vu. He's going, wait a minute, is this the same? Man, our people have so many Nephites. Which one is this? Wait, Jerusalem? Wait, he left Jerusalem? Father Leah? This is the original. This is the same story that I've already abridged from the book of Lehi. I've got 116 pages worth of that. I don't know why, but man, I feel like I'm supposed to include this too. And he's explaining this in words of Mormon. He says in verse 1, I'm about to deliver up the record to my son Moroni. In verse 2, I hope he'll survive, and I think he will, verse 2, that he might write somewhat concerning these people, and somewhat concerning Christ, that perhaps someday it may profit them. It reminds me of Jacob. I'm doing this as much as possible for my people's sake and for Christ's sake. Mormon is hoping that Moroni will be able to do the same thing, and he trusts that he will. So he says in verse 3, I made an abridgment from the plates of Nephi down to the reign of this King Benjamin. And then I found these plates. Verse 4, the things which are upon these plates pleasing me because of the prophecies of the coming of Christ, I wanted to include them. He goes on and he says, middle of verse 6, These plates which contain these prophesyings and these revelations, I put them with the remainder of my record, for they are choice unto me, and I know they will be choice unto my brethren. This is good stuff. I, yes, it's redundant, but man, this is, like the, this is like the spiritual version of the history that I've already put together. I wish I had this first. I wish, I wish everybody had written this way. Verse 7 why am I including both instead of just pulling out the other and including this in its stead? I do this for a wise purpose, for thus it whispereth me, according to the workings of the Spirit of the Lord which is in me. And then almost echoing Nephi word for word from 1 Nephi 9, 
And now I do not know all things, but the Lord knoweth all things which are to come. Wherefore he worketh in me to do according to his will. Nephi, 600 B.C. I don't know why I'm making two copies. Mormon, nearly 400 A.D. I don't know why I'm including two copies. Joseph Smith, Martin Harris, 1800 years A.D. Now I get it. Thank you, God, for preserving two records. Because we lost one and feared that we lost our souls in the process. When you read section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, when the Lord explains to, to Joseph Smith, do not retranslate the book of Lehi, there's no need. I had two copies. And what was taken and what was lost was the less of the two. I almost picture God chuckling as he explains things to Joseph Smith. Yes, Scripture has been stolen and tampered with. But I had two copies, and they stole the wrong one. As he says in that section, I will show that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. I refuse to lose this war. And what I did 2,400 years ago, and again what I did 1,400 years ago, was to make sure that you had truth in its best possible form. That's amazing to me. To conclude, Mormon tells us two beautiful things in verse 8 and verse 11. My prayer to God is concerning my brethren. And this would be the same prayer that Enos offered. The same prayer that Enos's forefathers required of God. Evidently the same prayer that went into the future and not just into the past. My prayer to God is concerning my brethren that they may once again come to the knowledge of God. Yea, the redemption of Christ, that they may once again be a delightsome people. That's been the fullness of every prophet's intent. To persuade people to come to the knowledge of God. And as a result, the outcome to become a delightsome people, to be saved. Finally then in verse 11, these records were handed down from King Benjamin from generation to generation until they have fallen into my hands. And now they have fallen into mine and yours. And I, Mormon, pray to God that they may be preserved from this time henceforth. And I know that they will be, for there are great things written upon them. I am grateful for the great things that have been written upon these plates. I'm grateful for ancestors that resonated with truth when they heard it, that rather than simply rest assured in the testimony of others, they went straight back to the source and gained a personal copy for themselves. I'm grateful for the opportunities that I've had to go back to the source, sink my roots deep into this living water and end up with root in myself. I hope that my students, my friends, most especially my children, will gain testimonies of their own. That my wife and I can pass down our faith undiluted 
so that it can rest in the soil of the people that matter most to us. And I hope you are able to do the same for those that you care most about. Thank you for joining me today for our study of the smallest of the small plates of Nephi. I hope it's been a blessing to you. If it has, please share it with other people in hopes that your faith can be passed along to those who need it. Until next time, may your faith remain unshaken.